This is Smash Notes, a podcast that brings you a weekly summary of the best podcasts on the internet. First up on this week's edition is Microsoft Research Podcast. Have you heard about machine learning? It's a way of making computers do work for you without telling the computer exactly how to do the work for you, but instead letting the computer learn from a bunch of data. Microsoft is apparently working on a new project that's called machine teaching, and that's all about making the machines do the work for you without having the data to teach them to do it for you. It sounds really interesting because the premise is basically how do we teach the machine to learn like a human would? Hold on, let me get the expert to explain it. The task. So when humans teach other humans, they teach in a very different way than they teach a machine. Now, if you have millions and millions of labels, then the task is about extracting the knowledge from that data. But if you start with no data, then you find out that labels are not efficient at all. And this is not the way humans teach other humans, so there must be another language. Mm. And the other language is what I call machine teaching. This is like a programming language. And just to give you an idea of how natural it is, what I see happen over and over in industry is that when people want to build a new machine learning model, they start by collecting a whole bunch of data, they write labeling directives, and then they outsource it, and then they get back their 50,000 labels, and then they have a machine learning algorithm try to extract that knowledge from mm. those labels. But this is ironic, because the labeling directives contain all the information to do the labeling. So imagine now that the labeling directives could be inputted directly into the system. Now, when you look at the labeling directives, they are features. They are saying, oh, this is a cooking recipe because it has a list of ingredients. So if we can make that the teaching language, then we can skip the middleman and get the machine to do the right thing. Okay, now that we talked about the next phase of teaching a computer to learn new tasks, how about we talk about teaching kids to learn? Ad Astra is the school private school in Los Angeles uh, founded by Elon Musk to basically educate his kids. They have a very cool and very non-traditional way of approaching learning. The school is based on campus of SpaceX, and their curriculum resembles more of a business than a typical school curriculum. Personally, I think it's really cool and it's the future of education, but let's hear from Josh Don, the head of school there. He explains what they do, how it's different from public schools, and what public schools can do to incorporate this kind of curriculum into day-to-day -day life. If you take an example of, like, let's say that give you a catalog of like 60 different works of, of art and artifacts over time, you know, from all over the world. And each of those different works has a unique demand from 10 different cities around the world. So let's say like LA, Sao Paulo, um, Mexico City, London, you know, Lagos, Nigeria, etc. So you have 10 different cities, you got 60 different works of art, you know what the market is for each of those different cities. The idea would be that four different teams that are competing to bid on these different works of art in live and silent auctions. And you're trying to put together a cohesive collection that you could take on the road and make the most profit, bring the most attendance in, and ultimately put together sort of the best marketing plan uh, and exhibition humanly possible. So, like, this is a project I designed called LAMA, which is for Los Angeles Museum of Art. And really the idea is that kids, not only are you, like, learning about the different works of art, you're dealing with the ethical issues that are, like, that are involved as well. I mean, Caravaggio murdered someone. Like, are you comfortable having his work as part of your exhibition. What about like Queen Nefertiti's statue? Like it, the Germans stole it from the Egyptians and it's been at the Noyes Museum ever since. Like, are you comfortable renting that piece of art and taking it on exhibition knowing that there, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a huge dispute over its ownership. So um, having kids, you know, at, at the age of eight and older, 
go through the simulation in teams, working collaboratively, having to figure out what their plan is. Like maybe you, you know, really want Starry Night. You've done the math. You figure that, you know, over these, let's say, you know, we do like 10 years of, of the art exhibition. You spend a year in each of the 10, you know, each of the cities. What cities you're going to go to, where can you make the most money? If this team does that, how does that affect us? What if you lose Starry Night in the auction? Like what's your sort of backup plan? So having to manage all those sort of different pieces of the project, uh, it's just quite a magical, like what you get from the kids. And, you know, you have negotiations going on at all hours of night. You've got kids, like lunch conversations are about like who did what and how much it went for. You make it all publicly available. So kids are always looking at spreadsheets and figuring out the financials and are playing not only sort of their hand, but everyone else's hand as well. Um, it's just like, you know, that's an example of a project that, is not only memorable, but but one that, that brings out sort of the best of what we want kids to be doing in school. This next episode is from a brand new podcast called Factually. It's done by a comedian called Adam Conover, where he talks to exceptional experts, revealing shocking truth and thought-provoking new perspective. It's an investigative comedy podcast for curious people who never stop asking questions. It's actually pretty interesting. Here's what caught my attention. On this episode, Adam was talking to a UCLA professor in the School of Law about Constitution and the Second Amendment. And they were talking specifically about the Second Amendment as interpreted by us today versus how it was intended back in the day. Basically, in 1791, when the Second Amendment was adopted, guns sucked. So no one actually expected you to have a gun in your home, never mind actually use a gun for your own protection. Here's an expert to explain this. Well, yeah, no, I mean, the framers were really focused on militias. It's written right into the Second Amendment. And if you look at the founding era discussions about the right to bear arms, uh, they talked about the right to bear arms primarily within the framework of the militia. In part, that's a function of the firearm technology at the time. Firearms were not very useful for self-defense at the time. You couldn't store a loaded firearm in your home, for instance. The gunpowder was too explosive. So it would take you about a minute to, to load your firearm. So if you had a criminal climbing through your window, you, the firearm wasn't what you would use to protect yourself or your family. So that's right. not how we thought about firearms. But they were effective uh, for militia service. And uh, as firearm technology changed and firearms became more useful for individual self-defense, people started to reconceptualize the right to bear arms as about uh, people's ability to have guns to protect themselves and, and to defend themselves against criminals, uh, which was very far from what the founders were thinking about. And so how, how did that happen? How did we move from a culture where nobody really believed that the Second Amendment was about that individual right to one where, well, now a majority of Supreme Court's justices do. And now, for all intents and purposes, that is what the Constitution now says, because the Supreme Court has says that, said that's what it says. Well, I think it's the real product of a social movement to advance the cause of gun rights. Uh, and it's been a slow, steady growth. I mean, like I say, part of it's the technology of guns changed. Uh, and so, um, but for most of American history, the courts said that the Second Amendment did not protect a right to bear arms or protected a right that was somehow associated with the militia service only and didn't have much to say about ordinary gun control. And that really changed in 2008 with uh, a 5-4 decision of the Supreme Court that said the Second Amendment did protect a right to keep and bear arms for individuals and to have guns in their home for personal protection. Um, and uh, indeed, the Supreme Court said the core of the Second Amendment was personal protection against criminals or in the case of confrontation. Again, not what the founders were thinking about when they wrote the Second Amendment. Below the Line has become one of my favorite podcasts. It's straight to the point, it's honest, and it does a great job at conveying the information that's otherwise taken people years to acquire. 
Here's James Bashari talking to Ryan Hoover from Product Hunt about what it's like to start a company and more specifically what you should test first when you're doing a startup. Some people also they they it's kind of almost natural to test out the things that they think are going to work first, like the things that they're most confident in in working. But actually, in many cases, you should probably test the most difficult, most risky parts of the business first. And so if it's if let's say you're building a new D2C brand, if if the uh, you know one of the risks is can you build a product? In many cases, that's not the biggest risk. So maybe you shouldn't focus on validating that. Maybe you should focus on the hardest thing, which is can you get users and can you get them cheap enough or can you re- return a positive ROI in this purchase or the sale? Um, I think that's something that people maybe don't think about. And they're like, oh, everything's going great. We've just validated the four obvious things that are going to work. <laughs> right. And the fifth one, oh, yeah, it's going to be hard, but we'll figure it out later. And then you realize that two years passes and you're like, we haven't figured out the fifth one. And if the fifth one doesn't get validated or doesn't work, then the whole business is is broken. Right, right. It's um, no, a thousand percent. Last but not least, here's a bit of public service. There's a podcast called Cat and Cloud which is done by a couple of guys from California who run a coffee shop. And usually they talk about very different subjects, but today they're talking about um, patent um, lawsuit and trademark because Caterpillar Incorporated, a $54 billion in revenue company as of last year, is suing them for the trademark around the word cat, which is pretty ridiculous. Here, I'll let them explain. What Caterpillar is trying to do to us is to cancel our our trademark that we previously had applied for and been approved by the patent trademark office. Caterpillar is Caterpillar Inc., yeah. the company that makes really large tractors. <laughs> yeah. Correct. Like they uh, I think last year they sold $54 billion worth of heavy machinery and they are st- and we got a letter from them uh, August 4th, 2018 letting us know that they were suing us. $54 billion. And that's just in one year. Yeah. One year. So they're doing okay. <laughs> it yeah, seems this is ridiculous. That So when we got the letter, the first thing that struck me was, wow, a company that's doing $54 billion in a single year actually has the bandwidth to go and find these frivolous things dig them out and spend money they're paying someone to talk to us yeah someone on their legal team is interfacing with us to try to get us to release the trademark to specifically it's the word cat yeah caterpillar uh you know the ins yeah i feel as the insect like they have the trademark for the abbreviation cat Right, which in my mind is the abbreviation for the word caterpillar, right. not the feline animal. Correct. But yet they are trying to, and they're doing this to a number of companies, which we can talk to in a minute, where they're essentially systematically going after a number of smaller companies and trying to cancel those companies' trademarks. And there we have it. This concludes this edition of Smash Notes. Many of you have told me that you really like this podcast and it helps you find new and interesting segments. If you do, please go to iTunes, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google, wherever you listen to your podcast and leave it a review because that helps other people to discover this podcast and the more people know about it, the more segments I can produce. All right, until next Monday. Thank you for listening.